Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank my contributors for contributing to the show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And now, without any further ado, our guests for today are Jared Murphy and Frank Joseph, and we are here to talk about lost continents, archaeology, anomalous finds, and whatever else we can think of. Thanks for coming on. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Glad to be here. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it, too. This is going to be great. It is. And um, so, Frank, you just sent me some stuff about Lumeria. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your book on Lumeria? Well, uh, it's it's kind of a strange story. Yeah, it's called The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, and I had been working on this book for, oh, off and on for about 10 years. Right along, It was parallel, actually, with my Atlantis research. And after I had finished the book... Uh, my wife looks at me and she looks at the floor, which is covered with all these chapter, piles of chapter papers laid out on the floor. And she says, nobody's going to buy this book, she says, because nobody knows what Lemuria is. Why should they get a book about something they've never heard about? And I tended to agree with her. I thought, yeah, that's right. Nobody knows what Lemuria is. Maybe I'll change the title or something. No. So... We went ahead and had it published anyway with Inner Traditions. They did it, bless their hearts. That was in 2006. And it's one of my best-selling books, as it turns out. <laughs> I don't know why it sold so well. Not only that, but there has been like zero advertising for this book for like 15 years, and it's still selling. So, I mean, it has sold over 20,000 copies, which is a lot for me because I don't usually sell that much. Most of my books don't sell anywhere near that. Uh, but that, that puppy is still <laughs> pumping out. So there's something strange going on, isn't there? Where just the word Lemuria, which nobody even knows, never even heard about, is fascinating enough for so many people to just to pick up this book and what the heck is that? And they read a little bit about it and then they buy the book, which is really strange. So, <laughs> you know, I found that if you write a book that you feel, oh, this is going to be a bestseller, it's going to do really, really well, that usually is the one that tanks, you know, <laughs> sells a couple hundred copies and that's it, or a few dozen copies. Hey, I put all my work into this, and then the other ones you're thinking like, eh, well, give it a shot, probably nothing will happen, and bang, that one takes off. Nobody can figure these things. Publishers, authors, we're all ignorant when it comes to stuff like that. But So there is something... There might be some kind of residual something going on, memory or genetic echoes or who knows what. Something about that name, Lemuria. It's a beautiful name, Lemuria. And what got me into it especially was, uh, well, I don't want to monologue here. I guess we should go to one of your questions, but just as 
his introduction, what got me started on this whole thing about Lemuria, I'd heard about Lemuria for years, many years, when I was doing my Atlantis research. And here are these people saying, oh, you know, there was this other great civilization that sank in the Pacific. I thought, oh, that sounds like a, a knockoff of Atlantis. That just sounds too much made up. So I didn't believe it. It didn't wasn't particularly interested in it. I saw all these crazy books, even crazier than mine, about uh, uh, spaceships and Lemuria and uh, all kinds of monsters. And Shirley MacLaine wrote about it and all that. And I figured, oh, I don't, I don't want to go anywhere near that. <laughs> and uh, but as it turns out, a strange thing happened. We were talking about destiny just before we went on the area with Jared. How things happen. Uh, I was doing an interview. I was working for a little newspaper in the Twin Cities. It's called Asian Pages. And I had a chance to interview all kinds of people from, well, even the United Nations and NATO and stuff like that. Just got a chance to, I called them up and asked them if I could interview them for the magazine. We went ahead. And I was interviewing this one gal. She was the ambassador from, uh, what was it? I think it was Burma. Yeah, she was the ambassador of, it was called Burma then, called Myanmar now, Myanmar. And uh, she was the Burmese ambassador to the United States. So I got a chance to interview her. And in the course of our conversations, she brought up about uh, something, one thing led to another. And she says, well, you know, uh, this reminds me of uh, the the story of um, how we got, how Burma got populated, where our first kingdom came from. And she told that as long ago, she said, very long time ago, there was this magnificent civilization that flourished out in the Pacific Ocean, and a terrible catastrophe happened, and it sank into the sea. And while it sank, Burma rose out of the bottom of the sea, and the survivors of this lost kingdom in the Pacific came to this new land that had risen up called Burma. And I said, what? What is, is this what they teach in school? Is this, or what is this? Yeah, this is just like a fairy tale, an old traditional thing, you know. I said, have you ever heard of Lemuria? And she had never heard of that at all. They had another name for it. So that started me kind of wondering. I didn't want to write a book about it, but I had some other weird experiences that sort of pointed me in that direction. And one of the experiences was, that when I attended with some friends of mine a uh, Chinese folk festival on the south side of Chicago. And it was a terrific festival. They had the whole history of China told in dance skits where they would have these really authentically costumed uh, Chinese dancers performing these dances that went back very, very long time ago. And they said to the very beginnings of their their civilization back, you know, 5,000 or 6,000 years ago or more. I didn't believe that. Nobody believed that. But we thought, well, this would be cool to see what they, the kind of a show they can put on. And I had just, within that same week, I had returned from Peru. And uh, so I had gone on some archaeological stuff down there. And the first dance that came out, these Chinese dancers, and they were doing a Chinese dance, and they're doing it in their original costumes, supposedly from this early time. And the costumes that they wore were not similar to, they were virtually identical 
to the folk costumes that I saw in Peru. I had just seen them five days before, dancers in Peru. And other than the racial differences between the Peruvians and the Chinese, the culture was spot on. What was particularly interesting about that is both of these dances dealt with the loss of a kingdom in the Pacific from which their ancestors came. So you have people in the Americas and Peru dressed the same as these Chinese dancers who had preserved this very important memory, this supremely important memory to them. We're dealing, don't forget, with peoples on both sides of the Pacific who were pre-literate, who did not have writing, but they had important things that they wanted to pass down to future generations, and they did that through art and myth and dance. And here I was seeing the same thing, and when you encounter something like that, you begin to wonder, maybe there are some parallels going on. My, my background, my training is not in archaeology. My training is in journalism. And I can tell you for a fact that journalism is more of a science than archaeology is. Because <laughs> archaeology is extremely interpretive. But journalism is basically scientific because it tells you how to... And when you go to school, and I went to the third best journalism school in the country, that was Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. At that time, it was the third highest rated journalism school in the United States. And they told us that if you want to determine the truth about something, or you want to know what as much as you can, you cross-reference it. You find one reference to it that seems to speak to it. And you find another reference to this problem. And the more cross-references you have, the more you'll learn about it. I have applied that policy, that modus operandi, to archaeology. I find that it works. So when I saw these two dance troops completely separated from each other, literally by consonants, by an entire ocean, and their similarities, I thought perhaps there is something to this old story of Lemuria after all. And so that led me on. That's how I got involved in it slowly over time. I came from a complete, not a skeptic, I wasn't a skeptic, I was a total non-believer in anything to do with the Lemuria because of all the silliness associated with it. Like Atlantis too. Atlantis has got a lot of silly, embarrassing stuff. No wonder the archaeologists want to wash their hands of the whole Atlantis question. There's too many loonies associated with it. Well, maybe I'm a loony too. I don't know, but I'm trying not to be to some extent anyway. But, um, so that's how I got involved. Fascinating. So, is there any other evidence other than cultural stories that Lemuria actually existed? Huge, gigantic evidence. Uh, my book runs, let's go, going on 400 pages and just barely touches the surface. You know, there's, uh, to answer that question, it's such, the answer is so gigantic. It's like you take a sigh, like, where do I begin? You know, but um, there is a Gnostic text that has nothing to do with Lemuria at all. And in this Gnostic text, which was written like about 300 years after Jesus, it purports to talk about, it purports to have quotes from Jesus. And one of the things that he says, at least according to the Nag Hammadi text that was found in Egypt, people ask, where is the kingdom of God? 
where is it? Is it here? Is it there? Is it up there? Is it down there? And they do not believe, or they do not know that the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth. Everyone can see it. Now that's the same thing with Lemuria. People are looking for Lemuria, or were looking for Lemuria, I guess maybe some still are wondering where it is. And the evidence is right there. It's huge. It's spread all over the Pacific. You have these cultures that make no sense by themselves whatsoever. You would think, according to the archaeologists, they say that the Pacific was settled primarily by Polynesians. Okay. So then you would imagine from that that you would see a unified Polynesian culture throughout the Pacific. And I guess people maybe assume that that's it. You go from one island to the other, and they're all supposed to be fundamentally the same. Wrong. These islands differ from each other terrifically. They, do, they differ from each other in the archaeological evidence, sometimes including huge monuments that are radically different from each other. And they also differ from each other in ethnicity and language. Sure, the Polynesians are spread all over, but it is not a Polynesian culture. You're looking at the remnants, at the, the remnants of a civilization that at one time was spread over most of the Pacific. You can maybe say all of the Pacific. It's hard to imagine such a thing. It's not a culture that's a lost continent. You can't even associate it with a specific island. It's only a culture you can understand in the aggregate when it's all together. These are all just different pieces and fragments. In the same way that the British Empire wasn't really England, it was when the Empire for England was flourishing, the British Empire, it was a correlation of many places that had been colonized. It's kind of similar to this, only the, this was a cultural colonization that was going on. It's a terrific story, and the most important, and it's a very old and long story. The important thing about Lemuria, the thing that really struck me more than anything else, that is really the most important thing, is that I conclude after investigating this one, I began uh, tw over 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and it's still... Uh, impresses itself on me. The number one most important thing is that that is the fountain of civilization. Lemuria is the place, or was the place, where human beings made the transition from low-level, uh, not very rich material culture into the beginnings of what we call civilization, the civilized world. The civilized world began, incredibly, in the Pacific. And I think the evidence for that is it's more than overwhelming. I think that it's... I would love to be able to, to debate uh, scholars far more knowledgeable than I am on this because the facts that are available, I cannot see how they can be dislodged from the fact that civilization began not in Mesopotamia. Civilization began in the Pacific and spread outward very slowly and gradually, admittedly, over time. And we know the mechanism of that, how that happened. So it's a fascinating story. Why it happened there? What events took place? When did it happen? If archaeologists would only, or if our scholars would only just look at this question dispassionately, uh, I can't see how they would be, could be led to believe anything else. But when, uh, when a person has, um, is ruled by hysteria, 
and they can no longer think uh, reasonably. They just think in terms of their emotional uh, makeup. Then it's it's a waste of time to talk to people like that. And people that have their minds closed, uh, there's no opening. So it's a waste of time. I and I don't have. I, I, I struggle not to have a closed mind. I, I feel very strongly about these conclusions. But if someone could come and show me that I've been following uh, erroneous information, I've misinterpreted misinterpreted things. I'd be willing to do that because the only thing I'm interested in is the truth. I want to find out what really happened. It goes back to my journalism days. I want to know what really happened. I don't want to know anybody's theories. I don't. I'm not even interested in my right. theories. I just want to know what really happened. And if you take that sort of a ruthless point of view, and it is ruthless because you can't let anything stand in the way of what has really happened, finding out what really happened, well, then I think... You've encountered some people that don't agree with that, though, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, and I think it's great that people do disagree. I'm all for disagreement. Because if people just sit around nodding their heads... Well, then there's no progress there. You know, I would, if people would just accept what I say, for example, just because right. I'm saying it, I'm presenting it stuff, that's worthless. But if they, if they look into themselves and say, oh, well, this is correct, or maybe this is wrong, or I don't believe it, that's the only way that progress can be made. And that's not the You know, one of the privileges, oh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Uh, uh, one of the privileges of this show is that we get to, dig into that we have a pretty educated audience and one that definitely has a a broader interest and a broader background than just the basics and so I get to enjoy asking the following question which it's a semi-geography question but it goes back into your years of research and when you were talking about debating and the Polynesian Islands and the makeups and how they're all different and and this goes into my research because I you know pre-show we were talking but I've had an interest in this in over 20 years also, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you is specific to, as I have rethought out from where I think our original global super society likely existed, I have, and I think Mount Toba, I, I, a lot of people try to pin me to a date, and uh, I, just to fast forward and ask and answer part of the question myself, which is, I kind of think a lot of this if more advanced society isn't just pre-Hunger Drives, but it's maybe pre-Mount Toba and Southeast Asia going off in 75 plus or minus 1,000 years ago. But I try to think of the deconstruction of once here's Lemuria, here's a continent, or here's an island or a group of space. In your opinion, in what you found, it's factually speaking, but you know, as much as we can project, I always try to look at, okay, the society falls, whether it was instant or over a period of time, did the water come, was it, is it really an allegory, but in your research, and, and as Southeast Asia became what we've mutated it into today over the last dynastic periods of the last, you know, post-Younger Dryas season, which I think is all post-advanced, uh, totally advanced global culture, but where do you think, was it, do you think that some of these Polynesian islands and some of these areas were once part of an above-ground landmass, or does it really all, is it a no-brainer? Is it New Zealandia? Is it the area north of Australia that once connected Burma and Myanmar and all that? Is it, or do you think that it was more between India 
Madagascar and and Australia, do you think it was a single giant space or do you think it was multiple spaces that after catastrophe struck it it, it sunk multiple locations and people kind of just left from those locations? I mean, do you think it happened all at once or there's a lot of questions in there. Mostly it was on the geology of the of this little was it one location? Was it a couple locations and I guess people just swam in the direction they could. And I guess my only other thought is whether or not the genetics would point to any common um, ancestry for Romeria. Well, I, th- I think the best way to address everything that you've mentioned is for our listeners to understand, and it's much easier to understand it today, that we live on a very active geological planet. That uh, All you have to do is look what's going on now on the Canary Islands to see how the world can change physically very quickly and how landforms can be brought into existence within a matter of moments. So we live on a very uh, unstable planet. And, that, and actually, that's very good because that's what 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 keeps life going, human life and all forms of life. That understood, and then we can understand what happened in the past. You brought up the real starting point of all this that most people neglect, and it shows you really have done your homework on this. And that is something called Mount Toba. Mount Toba. This is not for you, you understand this, but for our listeners who may not be familiar with this. Mount Toba, when it erupted, it's a volcano in Indonesia. And when that eruption took place, it is, so far as is known, the largest volcanic eruption that that the world has ever experienced. That is according to geologists today. So far as they know, that was the largest volcanic eruption, far larger than any volcanic eruption even before, all the billions of years before, or the tens of thousands of years since then. The eruption took place uh, about 75,000 years ago. There's another eruption that took place about 35,000 years ago. Both of them were immensely huge. These eruptions, I'm not going to just give you the facts and figures of it because they're they're so immense that it's difficult to comprehend. But let us just say that this one eruption caused such drastic climate deterioration that whole species of animals and plants were wiped out. It was a minor extinction event. Now, how does that relate to what we're talking about, Lemuria, or human beings? Until Mount Toba exploded, and it wasn't, by the way, parenthetically, just a single blast. It was a blast that went on that took place over the course of at least a year, probably more. And it wasn't the violence of the volcano, which was prodigious, but it was primarily the outgassing of material that completely altered the atmosphere of our planet for centuries thereafter. If you were in the immediate vicinity of Mount Toba, uh, you might have done better than if you were a little bit further out. And the further out you went, the conditions got uh, lethal. 
when this took place, just before Toba exploded, human beings had evolved, hum humanity had evolved, Homo sapiens had evolved, modern man. But we were in a we were in a genetic uh, on a, uh, a genetic merry-go-round. We had not achieved much in the terms of real cultural development. We had, to an extent, stagnated. And when that happened, the population, the world population of Homo sapiens, went off into many various different groups. And so you had many different types of modern human beings. And they were all sort of genetic dead ends. And until that time, it didn't look like we were going to really amount to anything as a species. We had achieved whatever cultural levels we could achieve, maybe half a million or a quarter of a million years before. We, we, had, be, we had stagnated, had not developed. But when Mount Toba went off and created this relatively minor extinction event, relatively minor because it wasn't like the extinction of the dinosaurs, in which there was 65% or more uh, of life on the planet was extinguished. No, but nonetheless, whole species did go extinct because of Mount Toba. And our species was affected also. There is an article in the National Geographic that first published this for the, for the general public that came out about, oh, I guess 20-some years ago now, that when Mount Toba exploded, when it had its eruption, Human beings were, at that time, had a world population of a little over two million. And we know that, or they know that, uh, through interpolation of DNA and where the DNA was found. And you put all that information, you computerize that information, and it gives you a generally accurate idea that the worldwide human population was a little over two million, about 75,000 years ago. But after Mount Toba, this is, uh, it's amazing how they're able to, to fine-tune this, but they were able to determine that the world population of human beings shrank from over 2 million down to 1,000 breeding pairs. In other words, human beings were on the, our species, you and me, our ancestry, our whole human species, was on the knife's edge of extinction 75,000 years ago. There were only 1,000 breeding pairs left. You and I, all human beings, are the direct descendants of those 1,000 breeding pairs 75,000 years ago. And were they just lucky? No. The, those people and their immediate descendants had to be the toughest, the most resourceful, the most innovative, and also the most socially cooperative of any Homo sapiens before that time. It was at that time, 75,000 years ago, a line drawn in the sand, that human beings underwent their final evolutionary change. They went from Homo sapiens to Homo sapiens hyphen sapiens. A big difference in that little hyphen. 
because that made the difference between the poor immunity systems that Homo sapiens had to the splendid immunity systems that we now possess. All of the resourcefulness, the the basis for social cooperation and, and higher culture and eventually civilization stem directly from Mount Toba. Just like Nietzsche says, what does not destroy me makes me stronger. And that's what it did to us. And this is what the fits in with and what exactly Charles Darwin meant by survival of the fittest. What he meant by survival of the fittest wasn't ruthlessness, it wasn't brute force. It was resourcefulness, innovation, and social cooperation. And those are the fundamentals of civilization. They, it took time from those 1,000 breeding pairs to eventually achieve any kind of meaningful population numbers, generations. Many of those generations also had to suffer and die and pass on their ability to, improving ability to overcome disease and the difficulties that plagued Homo sapiens after Mount Toba erupted. And if you begin to take that as the starting point, things begin to fall into place. One example, and that is when I went to school back in the 1960s, we were told that civilization began in Mesopotamia in the Near East between the Tigris and Euphrates River oh, about 3,500 B.C. In other words, about 5,500 years ago. That was just the beginning of civilization. All the things they found were necessary pottery, social cooperation in the small city-states, uh, art, all the things one associates, basic law systems, uh, all the things that one associates with uh, the essentials of civilization, metallurgy. In uh, 1974, all that changed radically because the earliest known beginnings of metallurgy and pottery and social cooperation and uh, beginning of literature, writing, all that has been found in Thailand. It's called Chang Bang Chang. Bang Chang is, is dates, predates Mesopotamia by more than a thousand years. They don't even know how far, but going long before a thousand years. And it is not influenced in the least by Mesopotamia. The myth now, we have to rely on myth because science can only go back so far. But we do know now that all of the essentials or the beginnings of civilization were already in place in Thailand going back 6,000 and more years ago, 6,000 to 7,000 years ago. And the myths associated with this civilization, Ban Chang, are of a, a, a non-Asian people who arrived from over the Pacific by the loss of this great uh, kingdom where all these things had already been evolved. And it's the same story that's being repeated on the other side of the ocean and other parts of the world. So if you're beginning to, to correlate the mythic and the archaeological evidence 
Now the focal point shifts radically from the Near East into the Pacific region. And that's what, that is, I think, is the real beginning point. So I don't believe, it doesn't appear, I don't want to say I don't believe, because my beliefs don't mean anything. But the evidence suggests that Lemuria was never a continent. We're not talking about a lost continent. The geology doesn't work out for that. Neither the Pacific Ocean floor nor the Atlantic Ocean floor are strong enough to support an entire continent. But islands and, and large islands have definitely arisen, even in historic times, from the bottoms of the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and have gone back under the waves. Something like that happened. The Lemurians were in possession not of a continent, but of a pan-Pacific culture that spread all over these islands and archipelagos. And some of them did go under the sea, to be sure. But much of Lemuria still exists. It just is not identified as such. Some of those, some of the names associated with it are definitely still Lemurian in the tribal memories of the people that live on these islands. And what we are witnessing, the final geologic blow, we're going from the beginning of this in Mount Toba, and the end of it was thousands of, many thousands of years later. And it took place uh, as fairly recently as 1,600 B.C. At that time, we can go into that uh, situation, but there was a massive, incredibly massive catastrophe, a natural catastrophe that encircled the Northern Hemisphere. Lemuria could not escape that catastrophe, and its civilization was literally washed clean from those islands because of this event that took place. It's an event that is somewhat similar to what's happening in the Canary Islands now, on the island of La Palma. For those of our listeners are familiar with ha- what's happening there, there is a massive volcanic undertaking um, occurring right now on the island of La Palma, the small island in the Canary Islands, which are off the northwest coast of North Africa. And what's what makes this little island eruption particularly interesting as far as... Uh, <laughs> Neighboring, uh, neighboring lands, including ours, are concerned, is that it deals with the potential for a massive drop of territory, whole territory of La Palma, into the sea. And if that happens, it will create a tsunami like we have never seen before. And the, the potential is there. So that if this land collapse does in fact take place at La Palma, and geologists have been warning against this for decades, that this could have happened, we're going to see a major cultural impact on the eastern seaboard of the United States. So Gary is going to have a wonderful eye view from Uh-oh. his home of what's going to take place. Uh, now, will that happen for sure? No. Uh, what are the what are the percentages of potentiality for this? We don't know. Could it happen? It might. Give you an idea what how things like this have happened before. There's something called the Storega event. Are you familiar with that? The Storega event in Norway. Uh, Storega oh. event was when there was a major earthquake. This was about. This was actually as a consequence of the end of the last ice age. But the Storega event took place 
about uh, 6,000 years ago. And this was a major earthquake. This is almost impossible for us to conceive. It is impossible for us to conceive how, how vast the potentiality of change in our planet is. The Storega event that took place about 6,000 years ago was the western coast of Norway dropped 180 miles of coastline into the into the North Sea. 180 miles of Norwegian coastline fell all at once. It produced a tsunami wave of 300 feet high, traveling over 70 miles an hour, and it crashed 50 miles into Scotland. Now, anybody that doesn't believe me or has never heard of such a thing, you just go to Wikipedia and keyboard in the Storega event. S-T-O-R-E-G-G-A. And that would have completely, and did in fact, completely wipe out and decimate the Neolithic settlements in Scotland at that time. They were gone. I mean, we're talking about a mass die-off there. And other islands, of course, in the North, uh, in the North Sea were utterly decimated by that. That is not a once in a lifetime, not once in a, the lifetime of a planet thing. It, it, it's something similar to that, not on that huge scale, but something similar to that is going on at La Palma right this moment. And if La Palma drops, in the worst case scenario, drops significant amount of its coastline, even though it's a small island, it also is going to create a tsunami, just like the Storega event, which will have implications throughout the entire Atlantic region. Something like that happened again in the Pacific about the uh, same time period, interestingly enough, as the Storega event about 6,000 years ago. We're a little more specific with Lemuria because there's a lot of geologic evidence to show that it took place about 1628 BC, and that was the end of Lemuria. Lemuria what, did not get sunk, Lemuria got wiped clean by these tsunami waves, just like those that struck uh, Japan, uh, what, about uh, 16 years ago now, that uh, the tsunami that struck northern mm -hmm. Japan and killed tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, did billions and billions of dollars worth of damage. That's nothing. That was small compared to the Storega event. And it was small compared to whatever the event was that sealed the doom of Lemuria. And that's Frank, how... where do you think um, the megalithic, worldwide megalithic society falls in then? Where, where, where were they um, in, time, in time frame? Well, the megalithic society in the Pacific seems to be really quite different than the megalithic societies that we know of in Western Europe. The megalithic... Well, I'm, I'm including Cambodia, the keystone cuts that are identical oh, uh -huh. in Peru, in, in Europe, uh, the, the megalithic polygonal constructions that you find in the stone spheres in New Zealand that are also around the world. So it, it, there appears to be a... And, and also terra preta, that engineered soil, mm -hmm. shows up in Australia along yeah. with South America and Africa. So I'm wondering if it's... If there's a common time frame for all of it, or if they were sharing, there, there probably is. If, as you're 
square, I'm sure, at dating these things with any kind of precision. It's extremely difficult. The reason why is, of course, number one, stone cannot be really dated, uh, at least in, the start, in human terms, too well. Change regarding to something like granite takes far longer. And at the same time, um, the only time, you, the only way you can really get any kind of time frame is by associated materials. And sometimes those associated materials are not going to be accurate. Uh, like, for example, there is a Lemurian site called Nan Madol, which is in Micronesia. And uh, it's a magnificent stone city um, that we can talk about later on. But what's interesting about dating that, it's I guess you could call it a megalithic site in a way. Um, archaeologists go into Nan Madol and they say, oh, this place was... Uh, uh, built, uh, oh, maybe about 500 years ago. Really? Uh, well, what culture was around 500 years ago that could have created something like this? Well, we don't know, but we assume it was Polynesians. Well, how come the Polynesians ever built anything like this anyplace else? Next question. So what they'll say is that, well, how do you know that this place was built only 500 or less years ago? Well, we found that uh, the remains of, of a meal that we carbon dated and that somebody had a a meal here, um, oh, about, about 1500 AD. So in other words, somebody came, had a meal there, and you assume from this carbon dating that goes back only 500 years ago that these were the builders of this place. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, you go to Stonehenge today, and you sit underneath one of the henges there on the stones, you have a, a McDonald's hamburger, and you leave part of the hamburger there, and it's dated 500 years since. Oh, well, somebody from McDonald's built Stonehenge. It's just as stupid as that. So as regards dating uh, these structures, it's extremely difficult to do that. I mean, with any kind of accuracy. But there is a the only way you can get a handle on it is through their stylistic uh, similarities. Then that would seem to indicate Something is going on. Um, for example, and this is really interesting, you find a place like Gilbeki Tepli, which I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with. This is in Turkey, of course. It's a Neolithic site. It's a fabulous Neolithic site. And it goes back over 11,000 years ago. And, of course, it's a stone circle or arrangement of concentric circles. as T-shaped pillars. It has a bow relief of what appear to be um, constellations, uh, uh, symbols of the zodiac that far back. Really a fabulous place. But one of the things that's really peculiar about it is, first of all, its name, Gilbekli Tepe. Well, what does that mean in Turkish? It means uh, the navel hill, the hill of the navel. Oh, that's or the belly button, the belly button uh, hill. It's called sometimes. Well, that's kind of a strange name. Why is it called that? Well, we don't know. It was always called that. Gebekli Tepe. And when you look on one of the uh, T-shaped pillars, actually several of the T-shaped pillars, and there are these stylistic figures of uh, human beings. And the, on these representations of humans, their long hands and their long fingers are oriented towards the, their navel. Now, that name, Gebekli Tepe, goes back hundreds, maybe thousands of years before the discovery was made in the, ninth, in the, in the late 20th century. That's, uh, nobody had found anywhere in Turkey represent, representations, especially that old, showing 
figures with their hands oriented around their navel. Well, you'll find, strangely enough, that same uh, basic design on the island of Majorca in the Mediterranean at another Neolithic site, a well-known Neolithic site, which also has T-shaped pillars that has figures that are oriented around their, their navels. Now, even more fascinating than that, you go all the way around the other side of the world, out of the Pacific, on Easter Island, and what do you find there? The Moai. And the Moai are these great stone statues that have their hands and their fingers oriented around their navels. And what was Easter Island known as by the natives there? Tepito Tehenua, which means the navel of the world. And you go also elsewhere in the Pacific, a place called Sulawesi, this extremely remote island. And on this island you find these bizarre, large, Easter Island-like statues, although stylistically different and yet similar. And these statues also have their hands oriented around their navel. So here you've got this very bizarre theme. The reason I bring this up is to try to answer your question. This unique theme of the emphasis on the navel, the navel of the world. You find it in the Gilbeki Temple, which goes back over 11,000 years ago. And then you find it at Easter Island, which archaeologists tell us goes back about 400 A.D., maybe a little later than that. Actually, the islanders on Easter Island were celebrating the navel of the world cult as recently as when the Dutch first discovered it. Uh, in 1712 or 1720. So it spans immense uh, vistas of time to go from 11,000 years ago all the way up into the modern era. Uh, something fundamental is at work here. So, Gary, yeah. you got to get a question and I kind of stop asking questions. No, no, go ahead, man. I'm sure it's probably the same question I'm thinking of. Well, no, maybe not. What are you thinking? Well, you know, it drives me crazy that that all these um, um, similarities that that are being have been discovered from around the world in different continents and different places, and uh, I mean, obviously, they all have to be connected. You know, you know, and one of the things that that makes me wonder is. Um, you know, are they connected because everything was one continent at one point? It was easier for people to travel? Or or how are these cultures um, communicating with each other? I think that that's an excellent question. It does not appear that there was some kind of a, a continent that people just walked from one place to another. It would appear that there was a, for lack of a better time, a, a better term, a spiritual cult or a religious cult, but a a high-level cult. The word cult today, of course, has very bad connotations. Um, but if we're thinking about a cult as a specific spiritual point of view, a kind of theology, sometimes this theology will produce missionaries, people who will preach this idea in other parts of the world. So it's conceivable that this navel of the world cult, which began in Neolithic times, or before Neolithic times, 
spread outward. So what we're seeing, the commonalities between places that are so widely separated on the other side of the world from each other, from Turkey to Easter Island, is because both were recipients of these missionaries that came and converted people to their specific religious idea. We see the same thing, of course, in Christianity today, where missionaries travel throughout the world and bring Christian religion to people who are unfamiliar with it, and it takes root in certain places. Now, we don't have any traditions, of course, about no native traditions outside of the name, Gilbekli Tepe, in Turkey, because the Neolithic people who built Gilbekli Tepe are long gone. We don't have any of we don't know what their myths or the traditions were. They left no writing behind. All they left behind uh, were ruins of their structures. However, we do have abundant mythic information from the Easter Islanders because they were in historic times and before they were literally exterminated uh, by the diseases that Europeans brought. Uh, they told us a lot about their origin myths. And according to their story the Easter Islanders' story, their founding father was called Hatu Matua. And Hatu Matua came from... Here's the, this is the same story again. He came from an island. They call it Mare Renga. And Mare Renga, it's just... It's, it's, an, it's a descriptive name. It just really means the splendid place or the beautiful place. Mare Renga. The place of the sun, actually. The, spl- the splendid... Island of the Sun. And Hatu Matua was commissioned to leave uh, Mare Renga. This is their story as uh, told to, well, um, Rutledge. She was the one that uh, did Elizabeth Rutledge. She did all of the really great archaeological work at Easter Island and talked to the very last uh, holders of these traditions before they passed away. And the story of Mare Renga was a Hatu Matua was told by the king of Mare Renga that there was going to be an enormously um, uh, catastrophic event taking place that will destroy Mare Renga. And that Hatu Matua had to take uh, his followers, his family, and whatever he could uh, in a, a flotilla of ships and leave to save whatever remnant would be left. And so Hatamatua gets into his ship. They even had a name for it. I forgot the name of it. Gets into his ship with his wife and his children and the rest of his family and his followers. And uh, it's either a ship or a flotilla. Some of the translation is unclear when it comes to specifics. In, uh, part of the, the legend is that he leaves in one gigantic ship, and then when he arrives at Easter Island, he has a flotilla. So we're not sure whether he picked up others along the way or, or what. So Hatamatawa uh, gets into his ship with his followers and his family, um, and all the magicians, they say. Well, what's a magician? A magician is just someone that owns or is in possession of a high technology that uh, you're not aware of. Uh, or that the native population is overawed by. So these magicians, i.e. technocrats, technological wizards, get in the great boat, get in the, 
is a great ship with Hachumato, and they leave Mare Renga. This terrible catastrophe takes place. Mare Renga is decimated. Hachumatoa and his people arrive at a place called Akapena Point. They even have the place where he landed. And he lands on what would later be called Easter Island, and he calls it Pito Tehenua, which is the navel of the world. And the reason why he calls it that is because he brings with him the sacred stone of Mare Renga, which is the, the navel stone of the world. It would appear that this sacred stone... Um, was the, the symbol of their religion, just the same way that the crucifix is a symbol of Christianity. So hey, this Frank, I gotta interrupt for a second. Are you you're referring to the the stone sphere that's on Easter Island? Yes, that's right. Uh huh. Either that one, it would appear that that may be it, or uh, they had others, just the same way that you may talk of the true cross, but there are many crucifixes. It's in that same way. Uh, but yes, the, the uh, Acapena Bay Oblate Sphere is, is uh, at least uh, they say that that is the original naval stone that uh, Hatumatua brought with him. It might be. It may be. It's an interesting stone in itself. It's not just a stone. It's a beautiful uh, crystal. So there might be something more to it than, than we can imagine. The reason I bring all this up is because I'm trying to answer Gary's question uh, how did all these things happen? There was a dispersal that took place, uh, migrations across the sea because of these catastrophes that happened, and also uh, there was missionizing, uh, missionary uh, activity that took place. And that, I think, is, can account for the spread of something like this navel of the world cult that you find spread. It's not spread all over the earth. It's spread at certain places uh, far from each other. But uh, I think that was the, the mechanism for the similarities that we're seeing in different parts of the world. Interesting. I mean, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, is I, I guess what, what kind of still gets me, though, is, is you know, um, well, I mean, is the method of travel. Like, were, were they using a more advanced methods of travel? Well, I think they were terrific seafarers. There's mm -hmm. very little doubt about that. We're now finding that there's uh, terrific uh, evidence for uh, substantial maritime uh, technology developing even in uh, early, uh, late Neolithic times. Um, it seems clear now, for example, that the Salutrians from Western Europe and France specifically were able to travel across the rim of the ice, and this is during the Ice Age, of course, along the, the coastal areas of the ice all the way to North America. And that is something that is, uh, the evidence for that is, is very, very strong. So, yeah, I think that people were able to uh, be magnificent uh, uh, seafarers, and they had the ability to uh, go very great distances. And part of, the, part of that uh, legacy lives on in the Polynesians, who are fantastic seafarers, are they not? Uh, their, their, their boats are small and fragile looking, but their designs are the most seaworthy craft you can imagine. The, with the, like, for example, uh, the catamaran. That is a very stable uh, design, and it enables the Polynesians and enables them to travel, travel the vast distances of the Pacific. And that is probably part of their uh, heritage from their Lemurian ancestors. Is there any connection with some of these um, with like the Minoans, 
Or the Minoans. Well, yes, they... I think the, right, the Minoans, I believe, were, were part of it. They're, they're rather latecomers in a way. But uh, true, the Minoans were also very great uh, seafarers. And, uh, but it, they, they came later. They, uh, the Minoans appear to have started like around maybe 4,000 years ago. Um, and again, they were part of the Bronze Age expansion. But um, when we talk about the naval of the world, that's something that's that's a lot earlier. Got it. Got any questions, Jared? Yeah. Hey, Frank, do you think that that naval of the world, do you think that that stone sphere relates to the other stone spheres? Is it just a, they grabbed it from... I don't know. There's stone spheres in New Zealand. There's stone spheres um, all over the world. So is it is it a similar thing, or do you think it's a separate object? Those stone spheres are really interesting. Um, they're very mystifying. I, I, they're not found all over the world. I, I kind of disagree with that, unless you could uh, enlighten me on that. The stone spheres, if you're talking about the same ones that are found, say, in Costa Rica, where they're most commonly found, um, some are found in New Zealand, they may be natural. I'm not sure. Uh, I've seen stone spheres in Mexico that were definitely not uh, natural. At the museum there, as a matter of fact, the big museum, the archaeological museum there in Mexico City. So it's it's hard to say. Um, I don't know what those big stone spheres are. I've studied them. I've written about them. Tried to understand them. This the stone, of course, it's in Easter Island at Acapena Bay, uh, that is nowhere near as large as the uh, stone spheres found in Costa Rica. Um, also, the, the navel of the world seems to have something that, that predated these things. I, I'm say, I'm just really confessing my ignorance here. Those stone spheres are really oh, fascinating. I'm so sorry, Frank. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to set you on the spot. It was just that I find it interesting that it never occurred to me so there's these megalithic sites all over the world, like you said, they're, they're commonly found. They were found in, you know, David Hatcher Childress likes to talk about the ones that were found in San Francisco, but they were found yeah. when they were building the, the streetcars, and then they were found uh-huh. in the Arctic Circle in Russia. They were found uh-huh. in um, uh, China. They're found in Bosnia. And like you said, are they a natural concretion? I think uh-huh. there's, factually speaking, the... The material science studies of these things. Fortunately, most of them, are, and, and the a uh, small fact, a lot of people don't mention or or know of that the Costa Rican stone spheres range in size from golf ball size to much larger. They they're, they're not just right. uh, and and so I do think and the shapes. I I really just don't think volcanoes got into a phase where they were making no. concretion. No. no. Um, but but I br- I brought it up only because it never occurred to me. It kind of blew my mind a little bit for all the research. It's always fun to cross check with other researchers and uh-huh. the idea that they actually carried that stone to Easter Island. I hadn't even thought of it. I just assumed that it was a surviving piece of technology that was off the coast of what is now sunk of Rapa Nui, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, that it wasn't something that traveled to the island. And if that's true, and these are not natural, like the stone core sample that was just taken, when you mentioned Stonehenge, you know, the, the recent news that, oh, the SARS and stones are 99.7% silicrete. And yeah. I'm wondering if we did the material checks on these stone spheres, I wonder if 
this particular one that's on Easter Island would, if we were actually cataloging them and looking at their hollow spaces, and you know, I I think they personally I think they have to do with wave frequency technology. But uh-huh. I'm wondering if the if we started doing material checks on the geopolymer or whatever they're made out of, if we wouldn't find that that this one that's on Easter Island was cast and we might be able to start pairing them all up as to where they were made. And I have a feeling that the shapes represent, there's been uh, some European scientists that I speak about that have done experiments with stone spheres that correlate to wave resonators. So they either amplify, mute, or mutate different frequencies and you know or waves. And in this case, you have an old piece of technology that got lugged over to uh, Rapa Nui, and it's... It, it, I, I don't know why, it just never <laughs> occurred to me until you said it, that they brought the damn thing from another island. Never thought of well, it. Well, uh, that isn't uh, my opinion. That is the uh, the story that is associated with Hatumatua, is that uh, the, the king, whose name escapes me uh, in the story, he gave this uh, the stone, the naval stone, to Hatumatua. And the idea was that you were to bring over... Uh, the whole culture and especially the religion, and uh, that that I think uh, is, is something that it's pretty easily verifiable. But I, I, it's really interesting. I, I was not aware that they were finding uh, stone spheres uh, as far as the Arctic or in Russia. Um, but I think a lot more work needs to be done. Some of these stone spheres uh, are unquestionably man-made. There's no, like the Costa Rican spheres. I have no doubt that those are man-made structures, if only because of the perfection that went into them. Uh, nature do- it doesn't work that perfectly, and also the placement, the, what, the arrangement of so many of these are in uh, recurring numbers of three and in lines. So they're definitely uh, they're not a natural. I don't believe they're a natural at all. The other thing is that, that makes them uh, identifiable as artificial is that the stone itself that went into the creation of these spheres is not native to that part of Costa Rica. You can only get it from the other side of the mountains there. In other words, that stone, the original stone, another incredible uh, detail of this whole mystery, whoever wanted to make those stone spheres, they had to go on the other side of the Costa Rican mountains, which are not that tall, but they are very steep very dangerous to climb, and they had to bring that stone, sometimes like nine tons of it, uh, across this mountain ridge, this lethal mountain ridge, and then brought it to the, towards the coast of Costa Rica, and that's where they fashioned this. Oh, my God. One of the most amazing things about those stone spheres is that one of the larger ones, not the largest, but up in the upper third largest spheres, appears on an island off the coast of Costa Rica that's over 30 miles out into the sea. So they had a ship. They didn't have a canoe. They had a ship that was able to transport a five-ton stone over 30 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean to put it on this small island that has never been inhabited. Now, that is that is just fascinating. So we're we're obviously dealing with a high technology. Those balls must have meant something uh, very significant to the people that made these things. They're not—they're not just uh, idols to be worshipped. 
and they're certainly not uh, navigational aids or anything like that. I don't know what they were using. I have no idea, but I have no doubt that they are man-made by a civilization that was really far ahead of anything uh, that, that we could have guessed ever working. Now, it's not Mayan, because the Maya appear to have no interest in stone spheres, unless I'm proved wrong by that. Uh, even though Costa Rica was occupied by the Maya, this is something that I think is completely different. And uh, to hear that it's found in other parts of the world, I get very excited about it, but I'm also hesitant because I'd like to see uh, to what extent uh, these stone balls resemble the perfection that's found at Costa Rica. Uh, there's some stone spheres that uh, are shown on a wonderful video by uh, Brian Forrester when he went to uh, parts of Peru, and there's this one area that has Oh, it looks like a dozen or more of these stone spheres. And they're just uh, on the side of a mountain. Uh, but uh, as he gets closer to it with the camera, they look rather oblate. They don't seem to have the same type of uh, measuring perfection that you find in Costa Rica. If we hold the Costa Rican spheres up as uh, an exemplar, as uh, as a specimen to be measured against others, they do not hold up that well. So some of these stone spheres may very well be natural. I'm not the one to determine that, but I, I have my doubts. And you're absolutely correct. They, all these need to be examined far more thoroughly so we can get a handle on what these things are. So, Barry. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, when we when you bring up like the the the, the uh, stone spheres. Um, you know, I, I can't help but think of so many other things like the ovelisks that have been found around the world, the pyramids. Again, like all all these old, um, you know, stone structures. Um, you know, were these simply just, um, you know, gifts or, or temples or, or or items of worship, or do you think they had some other purpose of maybe some? Uh, advanced technology that we don't aren't aware of, and that's all that's left. Well, I think these that the, build, the, the buildings are made then, and the skyscrapers we make today are very similar in in this regard, and that is that they served multiple purposes. Mm -hmm. So you use them, for example, as places of worship, um, places where you could show off the greatness of your own society and impress. Uh, potential rivals. That's important. Uh, so I think we had, there are multiple purposes going into the structures that we see from uh, previous times. Um, but you're right. I believe that there's a technology involved at the heart of these structures. Um, the important thing, I think, uh, in regarding these stones especially, and there have been other studies that have been done uh, not that recently, but I thought they were pretty valid. Um, gosh, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly who was the fellow that did the work on it. As an Englishman, can't remember now. Um, he was able to find that uh, if you if you do something like uh, have a meditation, for example, uh, around a, a, a crystal sphere, like a crystal ball or something, that there is some kind of uh, they were able to have a measurable um, effect on uh, human consciousness, 
kind of interesting. And uh, if you look at the, the use of crystal and the potential for its piezoelectricity, and the human brain itself produces more electricity than any other part of, our, of the body, uh, there, there may be a correlation of some kind that um, people that were more technically adept uh, were able to find in the ancient time. There might, there might be something to it. Maybe not just be a matter of belief or uh, theology for the navel of the world. It might have been actually some kind of a, a meditation um, discipline or regimen that brought mm-hmm. about altered states of consciousness. Hmm. But one thing that's very interesting about the old world when it comes to religion, that there was no dogma. Uh, even in Egypt, which had hundreds of gods, there was no dogma uh, there was no real religion in the sense that we understand it today. Uh, you had cults for sure, you had the cult of Isis and so on, but the important thing in the ancient world, whether it's Egypt or Babylonia, Greece, Rome, it was all the same, and that was the emphasis on religious experience, spiritual experience. Nobody sat around and wondered how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and all kinds of foolishness like that. Uh, or things like the Bible, none of, none of that was important. Nothing was written down. The reason why things were not written down is because in order to understand, or in order to not just understand, but in order to have the proper relationship between human beings and the deity is through an actual experience of it. We have some of that in the Catholic Church. I mean, the Catholic Church, I don't know about today, but the Catholic Church used to have magnificent uh, masses in which there was an appeal to all the senses. You had frankincense to breathe in, perfume, had magnificent music by Bach, had fantastic architecture, and all this was meant to put human beings, put Christians, in accord with Christianity, with Yahweh, if you want to call it, or Jehovah, whoever, Jesus. That was all to dramatize the experience of being in touch with the Lord, as it were. And the same concept, I think, went back to the ancient world, where you would do everything you could to dramatize the relationship between human beings and the gods. And that's that, I think, is what we're dealing with here. So this, these cults or these religious ideas that the Neolithic people had, or the pre, even pre-Neolithic people, was to engage people in a, a physical experience, so that they would know what uh, what God was, mm-hmm. not just by reading about Him or studying, but by actually having the experience. Back back to the spheres. Um, how do you think that um, they made perfect spheres back then? Like, like if you, for example, gave me a can of Play-Doh and told me to make a perfect sphere, I'm not going to be able to do it. Well, you know, that's a, that's a great point you bring up, because uh, one of the, the largest spheres in Costa Rica is over nine feet in diameter, and it weighs over nine tons. It was one of the first that was found in 1940. It was found buried. It was in the middle of a jungle. There was a banana plantation that the Americans were just starting up there, and they were clearing this jungle, and here they saw this the top of a, a stone, it didn't, it didn't look particularly large, but it was very smooth, and it was just barely protruding maybe about five inches or less above the soil. And so they dug down, and they dug down, and they dug down until they revealed this gigantic sphere over nine feet in diameter, and it's now sitting 
uh, on the lawn of a university there. Thank God that one was saved because they found literally dozens of these stones later on, some of them also very large, not as large as that, though. That's the biggest one found so far. And most of them were uh, smashed open. They would uh, they would uh, insert uh, blasting caps in these things because there might be gold in there or something. So they blasted these things open mm-hmm. by the dozens, and um, they just found they were solid stone all the way through. What's interesting about these stones is that, to, to emphasize their artificial nature, is that they're not uh, concretions. Right. That there is no layering going on. And the perfection of this nine-footer is of such a nature that if you took it to a, a stone cutter today, just say you had a block of stone that weighs nine tons, right? And say, I want a perfect, I mean perfect sphere out of this. You know, they say, right, we, we couldn't do it for, for any amount of money. It can't be done. The only way you could, now this is the thing. One of the stone cutters said, that the only way that you could have that same level of precision that is exhibited by the Costa Rican nine-foot stone is to put it on some kind of a lathe that would turn at a high speed and you'd have some unbelievable drill bit. He says, if I had some kind of an insane machine like that, I could maybe do it. Is that how they did it? Did they put it on some kind of an unbelievable lathe and spin that sucker until they could make it as perfect as possible? That's another reason why it should be investigated more thoroughly. If you go to the archaeologists today, they're honest enough to throw up their hands and say, we don't know. We don't know really how old these things are. Some archaeologists, they what disingenuous people they are. They say, oh, well, this is related to the Disque Indians. Well, the Disque Indians were, and I guess still are, I don't know if they still exist, they flourished maybe five, seven hundred years ago. Their level of culture was very, very low. As a matter of fact, I think their their greatest technological achievement was uh, their invention of uh, a scraper to remove the scales from a fish. Now, <laughs> I cannot see these people... <laughs> I mean, no offense to them. I'm, I'm sure they're wonderful people, and their fish scrapers are absolutely the best you'll find any place. But nonetheless, I cannot imagine that they would have created something like a lathe for a nine-ton piece of stone to be per- turned into a perfect spear. And then the other question is, why? Why would you go to such lengths, first of all, to get the stone, which is on the other side of the Costa Rican mountains, at the at the risk of your life, haul that over those mountains, bring it to the coast, and there you turn it into this flawless, nine-foot-tall stone. Why would you do that? It must have been a real important reason. Religion actually isn't is enough important to that. As crazy as people will do things for religion, I mean, <laughs> they would have they would have said, "Hey, there's got to be some other way." <laughs> right. That, that, that's like me saying, like, well, I'm going to walk over to Pennsylvania, get, find the biggest stone, drag it back here, <laughs> and carve it into a perfect sur- spear. That's right. I tell you what. Why uh, am I going to do know, that? Okay, now, I, I tell you what you do. Yeah, that's right. You walk over there. You can bring your friends if you want. You walk over there, and you wa- find the perfect stone, and then you have to drag it across the mountains, and then bring it here, and then I want you to turn it into this perfect sphere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. I'll do that right away. I mean, it's just this. It's crazy. So they must have had some very important reason for doing it. 
Um, I suspect that part of the answer is in the piezoelectric uh, qualities of crystal, because what I mean by that is, uh, if uh, if our listeners are are familiar with that, if you take a piece of crystal, almost any kind, uh, but the clearer the crystal, the better, and you subject it to a pressure, uh, it creates an electric spark. That is just the cellular nature of crystal. And if today, if you want to have a fire starter, you, in your fireplace, you can go to the store and you can pick up this, looks like a stick and it has a trigger on it and you stick that thing into the fireplace and you pull the trigger a number of times, a spark comes out and sets the fireplace going. And that trigger is a hammer inside, a trip hammer. And the hammer smashes into the crystal, which is in there. And that crystal is in such a way that it will react and will produce a natural spark. So I think that if you are able to submit quartz crystal to a very uh, sufficient, uh, strong pressures, you're going to get uh, a, an electric reaction. And if you go to the Andes Mountains, for example, the Andes Mountains, uh, especially in the Peruvian area, are noted for their high quartz content. They're also noted for something else. That's the Andes Glow. The Andes Glow is seen um, dancing over the tops. It's been photographed. Uh, it's been seen dancing over the tops of the mountains. It's this, this amber-blue haze. It's like a cloud. You know, it looks almost, almost like the Aurora Borealis. And then when that goes on for a while, very shortly afterwards, you'll have an earthquake. What that means is, is that the tectonic forces below the Andes Mountains are exerting sufficient pressure on the accumulation of quartz granite in the Andes that produces this piezoelectric effect. The same has been photographed in China and other parts of the world. It was regarded entirely as a myth until the photographic evidence came about in the 1950s or 60s. So it's possible that a people that would see this phenomena over time, eventually made the proper deductions or correlations, and figured, well, we're going to submit our quartz crystal to uh, uh, physical pressures, and we're going to get a, a kind of energy release ourselves. That's not as far-fetched as, as you might think. Uh, there are the Ute Indians who live in Utah, strangely enough, and the Ute Indians, even to this day, they will go up into the uh, Ute Mountains, and they collect certain... Um, very clear quartz crystal. And then they uh, will bring this quartz crystal back to their ceremonial lodges. And they put the quartz crystal inside these uh, little bags that have been sewn by the women. And these bags are translucent, very gauzy. Then they, the shamans will take these bags and the shamans will do a dance. And in this dance, they will shake the bags around. And the bags with the quartz crystals inside bang against each other, crash against each other, and you can see these sparks flying inside the bag and sometimes a little bit outside the bag. So it's a kind of a special effect. So here you have an aboriginal people here in North America. They were able to see the correlation between the application of physical force on quartz crystal for the production of electrical effects so I think if you took that with a more advanced people, uh, they're going to carry it further. And I think that's what they did. I think that they were able to 
um, maximize the uh, piezoelectric potential of quartz, and that explains why the vast majority, if not every megalithic monument uh, in Western Europe at any rate, is primarily made of granite, because granite has strong quartz crystal involved. And um, so I think that it's very possible that, uh, well, for example, Stonehenge was built originally over what is now a dormant um, earthquake fault. So it's conceivable that long ago, when you had earthquake activity taking place over Stonehenge, you would have seen a reproduction of the Andes glow. You would have seen this mysterious-looking electronic force taking place. Well, that if you're able to control that to the extent of maybe predicting it, uh, that's that's pretty powerful uh, showmanship so that you can um, impress your followers or would-be followers. Oh, I can control the lightning and so forth. And it looks as though the people of the ancient world were very interested in these possibilities. Um, for example, uh, there is a place on an island off the coast of uh, Scotland called Callanish. And on the island of Callanish, there's a magnificent uh, uh, stone structure there of these large stones. They're all quartz crystal, same thing, quartz granite, rather, have a lot of crystal in them. And this place has been struck repeatedly by lightning, um, going back thousands of years, and it still is struck occasionally. So it's conceivable that the engineers of Kalanish and the standing stones of Kalanish understood the correlation between electricity and these stones so that they were used as lightning rods. And I can call down the lightning. I can I can summon the thunder gods, as it were. And so uh, if, you're, if you're in possession of that kind of knowledge, uh, you can really overawe your, your congregation. You can create the miracles, or you can... Uh, be part of the miracles going on at a sacred site. And there's a lot of political power in that. Terrific political power. So that's what it seems to be. There, seems, there was a site also in France. Um, it's called Ergras, which is the largest of all these obelisks, this immense needle that was over 60 feet high, since fallen over. But uh, it also seems to have been set up with the idea of attracting a lightning, like a gigantic lightning rod. would look very impressive, wouldn't it? Here you've got this 60-foot-tall uh, monolith standing on the edge of the, um, the, the English Channel, and uh, you, you see a thunderstorm coming, and you summon your flock and say, I'm going to call down the thunder god. And boom, sure enough, the great lightning comes down and flashes on your lightning rod. So this is more than just speculation because uh, the evidence is right there. The physical evidence is there. Hmm. Like Kalanish that has all of these uh, scorch marks after thousands of years of electrical hits. Why would you create that? Why would you make your um, your holy site in an area that would seem so dangerous as to be hit by lightning? Well, that's part of the power. Or Delphi, for example, in Greece. Why did they make Delphi in this obviously earthquake-prone area because they wanted to take advantage of the the uh, tectonic forces that were active there. That's what appears, that's the most logical deduction from that. Jared? Ah, there is, uh, we could just keep going, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you're an we, expert we, on PCO electrical properties, so. 
What, what was that? I said you're sort of an expert on PZO electrical properties. Um, yeah, you know what? This is, uh, I mean, my brain's going in a few directions. We could have a whole other episode. <laughs> um, but this is exactly the, I, I mean, this is, this is right up my research alley also. So, Frank, we're going to have to like, uh, We'd, I would, we would definitely like to have you back. That's for sure. <laughs> well, you know, it's. I think it's just wonderful that, that you're on with us here because uh, we need to be able to to bounce off each other the things that we've learned or we thought we've learned. You know, am I going down the wrong track with this, or is this logical? But if you've made some deductions on your own that uh, parallel what I've been doing, that's wonderful. Like you mentioned Toba before, I got a chance to say it, and that's. That made me feel great because I figure like, oh my gosh, this is kind of a cross-reference confirmation going on here. And so, um, I, I think it's, it's wonderful that we can all of us get a chance to compare, uh, the direction that we're yeah. going and to make sure we're going in the right direction. Well, and you come tied back to something you said at the beginning about archaeologists. They, um, the whole system, has been very disingenuine with the overwhelming facts that contradict the narrative that is taught. And so I feel like we've struggled, and, and you've been at this uh, longer than me, and I feel like we all have to start with Well, you know, it's, it, it, it's uh, one of those cases where we have to shake out of our own brains these paradigms we're given, and instead of seeing the facts, we see these, uh, delightful stories of Leonard Nimoy on in search of and, and oh yeah, yeah. And, you know and some you know it's so difficult for us to see that oh do you know what something else happened besides the Greeks and Romans it's called Asia so you're <laughs> yeah. in, you know the reference for oldest oldest I mean how often do you hear that parroted over and over and over the oldest yeah. writing in the world and it's yeah. like really and, and and then when it comes to ancient megalithic advanced building societies, it, it fascinates me that every natural history museum is a collection of, they built giant 25-foot pillars, but they had no idea how to work with wood, so they all had a thatched roof, and they built with a river <laughs> rock between them. Yeah. So, you know, we have some new mysteries, and the, the new mysteries are, when I started researching, Klaus Schmidt was still alive, uh-huh. and the numbers... I tell everyone, screenshot, 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 because the numbers were not 11 or 12,000 years old. That is now the vernacular of a common agreement of standard academia. It's like this weird marriage where it's like, we're willing to say 11,000. Well, no. When this all came out, it was 18 to um, 25,000 years was the year. Jeez. And then they said that, yes, and that was a common, that was a common statement. In fact, I was so, it was so common that I was like not, caring to look at the specific i i'm like look i can't look at this i need to move on to my more my engine my ancient engineered soils i mean you know you're focusing on to your point about sharing research it's like you have to focus on a particular area and it's i don't think people realize the amount of hours it takes to verify or look at information and and get get to something that okay well i will write this or i i don't have enough confirmation on this and this other stuff is just Whatever is uh, so that I, I I do think that there's a a lot of angles to come at all of it to to have and carry a more honest interpretation of like go back to Pepe where it's like first up there's six Pepe's and only 
uh, Neroli and uh, ter- I, I know I'm going to slaughter it. I'm not Turkish, but you know the, the the other the other five sites they they're all showing signs of that uh, you know pre younger dryas uh, time frame. And there was organics early on. Postman was still alive. They had found organics in one of the areas. Mind you, we're making massive assumptions about Quebec Lake It's only five percent dug up. Yeah. Had it for thirty something, barely thirty something years. And yep, what are the templates we all use? Well, it has to align with everyone else who is in a loincloth and their astronomical observations. And it's like, oh god. And then, yep, they could build giant pillars. But then they gave up into river rock to stand between the pillars because they didn't know how to cut blocks for walls. So are we looking at the same group of people or is it a site with yet again, multiple abandonments, multiple right. adaptations by primitive societies exactly. that have taken off? Yeah. So I, I, I have a lot of fun with it myself. And, but the, the, like you said, the, uh, connecting with other researchers where, yeah, and everyone listening, you know, we're doing this live right now. Uh, Frank and I have not been able to speak before, but it's really fun. I think that's one of the things that most of the listeners now gravitate towards, which is they're doing their own research. I love, I don't know about you, I like getting fan mail where it's like, I've been thinking this for years. You're the first person I heard talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think if you fun. just connect with one person out there, it feels like all your work has not been in vain. It's just somebody totally says, agree. oh, yeah, I've been sort of following this, and you brought something I, w- I didn't consider before. Then it feels like uh, all of your, your hard work uh, was not for nothing. Yeah, I know, and it's so hard to look at. Like, I, I have a hard time watching a lot of uh, uh, shows now, a lot of movies where they're talking wizards, and uh, I'm not going to knock any of them out. I, I've enjoyed a lot of series, but I, I think that some of what we're drawn to is in our genetic memory. I think Lord of the Rings is a good example where there's there's pieces of it that I think some of the things that are popular in, in our sound and resonance and our in our, our frequency gravitation when we listen yeah. to music. Yeah. It, all of it all of it relates to a higher technology, um, more integrated to to more of a probably more technical earth grid. I think all of it relates, but then I think we've dumbed some of it down so far where where, you know, the idea of superheroes, it's I think they've They've gone so far off the rails. Like I can't. It's really hard for me now. And I used to love like Jason and the Argonauts. So last oh yeah, thing sure. that's, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Who doesn't, right? I love that. But then, you know, when I when I when I watch it now, it's like there were no Greek gods. This is a reference to an advanced, lost, ancient, high technology society, and it's been mythologized and. And uh-huh. I'm watching very primitive adaptations of what is probably nanotechnology, and this is the kind uh-huh. of like now. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, that, that's okay because uh, when you're younger and you watch something like Jason the Argonauts for the first time, that really I think opens the door. And if you find later fault with it, well, that's okay because it's it's art, you know, and it doesn't it's not a documentary. And um, I, I can still watch Jason the Argonauts; it doesn't bother me at all. And because it's an artistic thing. It's not meant to be, oh, this is exactly the way things were. So that's... No, that's but I'm still to this day terrified of those stop motions. Button. To this day. Oh, yeah, yeah, where they fight the Cyclops <laughs> and the scary stuff. And when I, when I was 14 when I saw that, and it was, it was pretty impressive stuff. So Class. Oh, I agree. 
Well, listen, uh, I, I would uh, like to be able to continue this conversation, but I cannot, unfortunately. I have got some commitments coming up here, and I have to be able to attend to them. Um, so let's uh, we'll have to do I, this I, again in the future, and I look forward to that. That would awesome. be great. Gary, you got to give Frank a chance to promote his stuff now. Absolutely, Frank. Um, so before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, most of everything we've discussed today um, are in two of my books. Uh, one of them is called The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And uh, that is available at Amazon.com. That uh, talks a lot about Easter Island. We talked about that for a while and some of the other things in the navel of the world. And then the other book is called Before Atlantis. That also addresses the Lemurian question. Um, the Lost Civilization of Lemuria, I wrote that in 2006, whereas Before Atlantis came out just a couple of years ago. The reason I mention that is that there have been quite a lot of really significant finds that have been made between then. And uh, so if, if you're interested in uh, either of those subjects, uh, Before Atlantis, Talks about Mount Toba to a large extent. I did not mention Mount Toba in Lost Civilization of Lemuria because I didn't know about it at that time. And, and uh, it talks uh, in Before Atlantis about that great bottleneck. That's what they call it, the genetic bottleneck in which the human population overnight uh, shrank from over 2 million individuals to 1,000 breeding pairs of people. That was all, just about 2,000, maybe 3,000 we're left out of two million, and how we are all descendants from the tiny, tiny survival rate. And um fits into this whole story of, of Lemuria, which I find really fascinating, and and I hope uh, that our listeners have found, have found it interesting as well. Awesome. Well, I'll post a link to those books in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check it out, buy them, and, and investigate some of this themselves. And hope we consider, you know, hopefully continue some of this research because everybody should be involved with it. I agree with you. I think everybody should be involved and everybody can be involved in it. The more educated and aware people are on this, the further this whole question is brought along. So that's why I think your show does a really great good because it does bring us all up to snuff on these things. And that's, that's what's going to lead to the inevitable disclosure on this. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> well, this is a great episode. Thank both of you for being on. And uh, hang on for one moment. I just have to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. 
just remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.